Hey everybody, Todd here, and I swear we're going to get started in just one minute, but I wanted to take a moment to remind you, if you're enjoying the show, if you like what we do on the web, social media, you name it, take a look at our new page over at patreon.com slash play to find out how you might be able to get involved, what we can do for you, and uh, just take a look around and see what we're doing there. So again, that's patreon.com slash play. Sit back and enjoy. Good evening, fans. Tim Kittrow here, the voice of NBA Jam. And you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by CodeWritePlay.com. Boom shakalaka. My mom gave birth in 1985. I was blue than a Pac-Man ghost, barely alive. In the Cold War, my only blanket was Tetris. I played Rampart with Reagan Rampage, the world for breakfast. The laundry mat was my sanctuary. The arcade was my church. I uh, Jordan I Lemus, how, how's it going, man? It's going very well. Thank you so much for calling me. We set this up. You nobody ever jumps into a show this fast. I was like, any chance you want to do it tomorrow night? Like, yeah, dude. <laughs> I have nothing to do. No, I'm just kidding. I wanted to be on anyways, but I was just playing Dragon's Dogma. So <laughs> I saw some tweets about that. It looks you you made a very special boy to play. I made the game a very with. beautiful boy. Um, <laughs> I am now making a very beautiful pawn for him to travel the world with. Who will be equally as beautiful. So it's a it's a, it's a good game so far. I, I like when people take their character creation seriously. So, oh, very much so. Yeah, I mean, I spent a good hour on it earlier. So, <laughs> uh, speaking of which, at the top of the show, I just wanted to ask: Did the uh, Beat Saber team ever get back to you after we did did our? No, uh, no what? They haven't reached out to me yet. It's crazy. I um, can't believe it. We did such nice promotional work for them, and uh, you did great work for them. We had a great quote. Um, I think it's a good way for them to go with their marketing and they're just not going with it. So I don't know what to do. Very surprising. I'm not in charge, but uh, I, yeah. I do have the quote here. It was, <laughs> you, you tweeted this out and, and I couldn't help but create a nice little promotional graphic for this. But the quote was, Beat Saber, play in the nude so if anyone breaks in, they'll feel shame or pity, either of which should get them to leave. And that's uh, it's true. attributed to, <laughs> to Jordan Lemus, concerned citizen. Yeah, I mean, it's accurate. They should run with that. I can see an entire marketing. Just it's it would be great. It's not too late, as far as no, I'm concerned. I would do the commercial. You know, I already <laughs> play like that, so it's not. Too, I have the visor on anyway, so I can pretend no one's filming me. It's great. Do you like it? Is Beat Saber fun? I love it. I only wish I had it on PC, just for all the tracks that you can do basically any song, and people do their own like beat maps and stuff like that. But they came out with. Like 15 new songs for the PSVR last month, or I think it was, and they're all really good. It's a ton of fun. It's a workout. They did such a good job of getting, uh, I mean, first of all, it's an extremely cool idea and it looks flashy and like the videos come out oh, yeah. really cool, but like it went like so viral, those videos. Oh, yeah. But I started seeing some that didn't have the name attached to it and it was just like, oh, when, when Jedi meets uh, <laughs> DDR or something like that. And I was like, tell us what game it is, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm hoping that I forget what it's called now. The Oculus Quest, I think it is, or the with the the No Wires one that they're coming out with. Oh right, apparently yeah. is going to have Beat Saber on that, and I'm hoping that's the case because it'd be really cool to have like a 360 Beat Saber map where you have to actually turn 90 degrees and hit notes and then turn again. So I'm hoping they do something like that. Yeah, I would, I would totally buy it just for that. I would love to try it. I think my wife would even like that one a lot too. Yeah, it's fun. So let's let's set things up for you. Tell us yes. where you're working right now and what you do. Yeah. Uh, so for the last uh, bit over two and a half years now, I've been at Ubisoft uh, Quebec in uh, Quebec City. 
it's uh, we're finally getting out of winter right now. Our winter's been going for about six months now. So I didn't know it ever stopped. <laughs> yeah, you know, it does for a little bit. We get about two weeks of spring and then a few <laughs> months of summer, two weeks of fall and then right back into winter again. Uh, so I've been at Ubisoft for a few years now. I've been working on uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I did a bunch of work on that and did some of the DLC. Not the one that launched today, but some of the upcoming stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I'm currently on something that has not been announced yet. So exciting times. Awesome. That Well, that's extremely cool. And I want to get into um, how you got there, what your day looks like, things like that. So sure. um, I, I'd like to start at the top. You said you this this was interesting to me because you said you grew up in California. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I spent my entire life in California. Never left the country until taking this job. So this is my first trek out of the country, out of, you know, into Canada. Uh, other than that, I was just in California my entire life. Yeah. It seems kind of particularly cruel that somebody would already be in California but have to go to Canada to work in the game industry. Is that unfair in some way? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Um, It it was. Um, I definitely tried to find anything I could in uh, California, the States, uh, Washington, everywhere, honestly. And got to the point where I started looking worldwide. I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to start looking in Europe. I'm going to start looking in Canada and everything. I was just looking everywhere because I so desperately wanted in. And I'd been working in the industry for a few years, but not in AAA. And I had hit the point where I was like, I either need to get in now or I need to find something else. And I don't know what that something else is. So I really hope this works out. And thankfully it did. Yeah. And you said you went into into college with plans to go into English and writing, but you weren't sure how you wanted to apply it. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Um, I went to college because I was my parents told me, you know, that's what you do after you graduate high school is you go to college. And so I said, OK, I'll do that. Still paying off those loans still will be for many years now. <laughs> so thank you, parents, for warning me about that. But uh, yeah, I my first two years there, I basically just took all the general ed courses. I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't know what I was really good at or definitely had imposter syndrome back then where stuff I was good at. I didn't think I was good at it. I randomly picked essentially English and writing. I was like, I kind of like writing. I've always liked reading. Like that Mm -hmm. seems like it would be cool. No idea what I wanted to do with it. There's not that many career opportunities out there really for someone looking for an English degree. So thankfully it worked out, um, graduated. And I was like, okay, now what do I do? Because I didn't think about this beforehand. And now I have an English degree. I could teach or I can, I didn't know what. So (laughs) I was like, I'm gonna start looking for jobs. Right out of college, uh, a few months after I graduated, I took a, uh, customer support job in the industry through like a friend of a friend of a friend who knew someone they were hiring a customer support rep up in San Francisco. And Mm -hmm. I was going to college down in uh, near Los Angeles. And they're like, Oh yeah, we uh, want someone to start basically this coming Monday. And I was interviewing (laughs) on Thursday. So I just driven up there like eight hours, drove back, packed up my stuff, drove back up, moved up to San Francisco. And that's where I lived for five years before I came to Canada. Man, so and this California thing is just too hard to get past. I mean, were you <laughs> you were a gamer growing up, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, my first memory ever that I have, like the oldest memory I have, is sitting on the floor uh, in my living room. My uncle lived with us at the time, and uh, we had the TV on the ground. I had a huge bowl of Fruit Loops in my lap, and we were playing Legend of Zelda. That's my oldest memory that I have, and I've since that day, and because of him and my family, yeah, games have always been a huge part of my life. Mm-hmm. never growing up was I like, oh, I want to work in the industry. It seemed like this thing that was kind of just magic and I didn't know how to get into it and never really bothered wondering. But I think there was always that piece of me that wanted that. I just didn't know 
enough about it to really go for it. Mm-hmm. And starting in customer service seems almost like something that would make you not want to be in the game industry (laughs) (laughs) after a short period of time. Because, And I say this coming from um, having not worked in the proper game industry, but I've worked in professional software all Mm. my career. And so the two things would be customer support and uh, quality assurance seem like they would make you just absolutely hate it. So uh, it takes a special kind of person to (laughs) to pull through that. And it, it sounds like you did just that. Yeah, if anything, I think uh, having that actually pushed me harder to get out of it as soon as I could because I was very quickly over dealing with customers and uh, everything like that. So I'd already done enough of that in college with those kind of jobs, you know, working in like yogurt shops and restaurants and everything. But, you know, I saw it as it was my kind of foot in the door. Hopefully I was going to meet some people. Just even being customer support in the industry for me at that time was just like I felt like I had made it, you know, I was moving to a new city. Unfortunately, the first customer support job I had, that office shut down three months after I moved my life up there. Oh. So that was <laughs> that was almost bad. Thankfully, um, I got another job in San Francisco up there right afterwards. I was also customer support, but it could have went a very different direction. So I got very lucky. Yeah. And, and you got as far as like customer support management. Yeah. So I had my own team under me at one point. Um, I had a decent amount of team. We had some outsourced folks and some in-house people. And we had a few games in the company. So I was kind of the lead for customer support for one of them. And then um, our company was developing a new game and it was a MOBA back when literally everyone in their grandma was developing a MOBA. Yeah. Um, and they're like, oh, we actually need a writer. So um, while I was doing my customer support work, I was like, uh, let me help you out in the meantime. Like, I will write whatever you need me to now in my free time. And then it got to a point where we brought in a new creative director for that role. And he was like, why are you not doing this full time? And I was <laughs> like, great question. I would love to. Um, so I did that. And we I worked on that game for a bit over a year until they then shut that down and let go about 100 of us that were working on that game shortly yeah. after launch. So I had some some bad luck in the beginning of my career. I'm hoping it gets a lot better from here on out. But <laughs> that, And that almost seems somehow worse. It's like you, you started getting to do actual creative work while still doing the old work. Yeah. I, like how, how, how long a period of time was that? <laughs> I mean, thankfully, it was, it was probably, I mean, a good six months where I was trying to help out when they needed help. But they were having an engineer do all the writing in the meantime. Because they were like, oh, we need someone. And the engineer was like, oh, I'll, I'll do some writing. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I can do the writing because I went to school for it. And I that's what I want to do. Uh, and they were like, that's probably a good idea because we need our engineer to do literally everything else for this game. So they gave me the shot and I did that. Some really cool moments. Like I got to go down to Warner Brothers in the recording studio and see people like Laura Bailey, you know, read yeah. lines that I wrote, which is just like the best feeling ever. Uh, So I definitely hold all those memories very dear and it was all well worth it. So I got a lot of cool experience, worked with a lot of great people who were far more experienced and knowledgeable than I was. I worked with one of the people that worked on League of Legends right when it first came out. Mm -hmm. Vagar in the game uh, was named after this guy. His actual name is Vagar. So I got to learn that little tidbit. So I worked with him, the the real Vagar. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> this is a cool thing. I've I've read a little bit about the sort of crossover where you're doing game industry writing and recording and stuff like this and and they use a lot of the same 
sound studios and stuff that they use for TV, movies, everything mm-hmm. else. And uh, I even read about sort of the, I, I guess, mid to late 90s where some studios were doing deals where they they like, like how, um, I think it was Naughty Dog that started this way. They like signed on with Sony and they were like actually on the movie lot working mm-hmm. in a hallway somewhere just out of the way, you know, and no air conditioning and all, all right. that stuff. But like that, like a development deal the same way, like, you know, Seinfeld might have a development deal. They just, they're in there working on whatever they want. Someone comes and checks on them and says, hey, did you come up with anything? Like, not yet, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but but there's still some of that kind of thing still around, which is fascinating. Yeah, it was super cool. Um, they're like, we're going to fly you down. You're going to sit in the studio. And uh, if the, the actor needs help or the director needs help, then they'll ask you questions. And I was like, okay. And it was awesome. There was I was like, there's a lot of important people here making TV shows and movies. And I'm just here doing a little video game. But it felt very special. And it was really cool to see kind of how that process was done. And that was really the first time I got to see from writing the words down to it getting put in the game, like what the whole process was for that. And yeah, it was, it was a great experience. Tell me from the transition from school into, it wasn't directly into a writing position, I I guess, but uh, once you did get to transition over to a writing career, like, did you feel like, I I don't know how much of your degree focus was on actual like creative writing as compared Mm. to like generals and stuff like that. But I've spent a little bit of time with it because I thought about going to school for that as well before Mm -hmm. I went the tech school route instead. But did, did you feel ready for that? Did you feel like you hit the ground running? I think so. I think I was very worried about it. My degree, it wasn't my um, emphasis, that's the word, was mm-hmm. in creative writing. So a lot of my courses were like, I had a lot of script writing courses and screenwriting and stuff like that. Um, so I definitely felt like I had a decent idea of what needed to be done. But at the same time, it was my first game writing gig. And I honestly didn't really know what went into that. I had a really good creative director who was super helpful throughout the entire thing, super friendly, like definitely a mentor. And he helped me kind of figure it all out because I was the one writer on the team. So everything I was writing was getting sent straight to him and then he was approving it or giving me feedback. And it was a really quick back and forth. So I got to learn a lot very quickly, kind of because I had to. But I definitely learned that I had no idea what I was doing (laughs) and would have multiple moments of that throughout my career so far where I have no idea what I'm doing. And you get to look back on it, though, and be like, I've definitely come a lot further from that point. And hopefully there's a lot further to go. There's a lot more to learn. And I'm always looking to learn. And yeah, so it's been good. Yeah. I was thinking about this the other night because I was I uh, had access to a book about narrative design and things that branch out from it and stuff Mm. like that. And I thought. I wish I could see sort of a graph of of the actual use of the phrase narrative design in the last like five years. It just goes straight oh, yeah. up because we we never talked about it before because like honestly, it should have been on our minds, but it seemed like someone else just did the job. Some some uh, designer, some engineer, some someone, and maybe they were good at it. And then you know, yeah. there were plenty of games that had just really compelling stories or dialogue or whatever it was, but we needed experts yeah. <laughs> and didn't, didn't necessarily have them. So yeah. uh, that's, that's another holdover that kind of surprises me. Like wh- why don't we have enough of the right people writing? That is a very good question. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I want that too, just so there's more jobs out there for everyone that wants to do this. And I think it's definitely gotten a lot better since when I was in college. I know that when I was looking for writing jobs, it seemed like they were very, very few and far between. And since then, it does seem like more companies are bringing on more writers. There's larger teams. A lot of companies still do have just contract roles where they're, you know, they'll bring on writers for six months, mm-hmm. usually, maybe a year. So it's a temporary thing, which is kind of a bummer because 
it usually still requires a move. So you're asking someone yeah. to move their life for six months to work on a game and then possibly not have a job again and have to move somewhere else. So it is tough. I think that it would be a lot better if the industry allowed a lot more. Uh, there's a lot of threads on Twitter about this too when this gets brought up, but more freelance, like outsourcing, um, you know, being able to work from home and do all that kind of stuff um, as opposed to having to be in the office because there's a lot of talent that can't just move to whatever expensive city they need to move to for six months, you know. And there's a lot of talent that could definitely do the work through, you know, Skype or Slack or whatever program the company's using, still get the work done and not have to, you know, move their whole life. So hopefully we get to that point soon. At some point, I would like that. So no one has to pay San Francisco rent or Seattle rent. That would be good. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like the indie space is kind of already caught up with this because they people do want to work with writers, I think, across the board. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, it's, it's very clear to, to tell a product that did or didn't have writing expertise. And yeah. I myself, like I, I did uh, journalism type stuff very briefly, but one of the things I was trying to do during that time was I was hoping to find maybe some contract writing jobs or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a little harder to, to develop software alongside somebody remotely, although people do it very well all the time. Mm -hmm. But I thought, yeah, if I could like contribute some writing somewhere, that'd be a lot of fun. But like, it is really disappointing that people sort of want you on site when maybe that helps. Maybe it doesn't. It's, I'm, I'm sure it's not quite as helpful as it is uh, difficult for that person, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it is tough because there are a lot of pros that come with being right in the office. You know, you can walk over to that person's desk and be like, Hey, this line you wrote, it's trash, fix it. You know? <laughs> um, and whereas they may be, you know, offline or whatever, if they're working offsite, but there, I think that the positives do outweigh it. And I'm, I'm hoping and praying that there, you know, there comes a time where more companies aren't bringing people into the studio for six months at a time. And they're just being like, work where you live. It's six months. Cause that's a lot more manageable to do to be like, yeah, I can totally work on this for six months and live where I currently live or even move somewhere cheaper while I'm working on this, you know, move out of San Francisco to work on this job, you know, something yeah. like that. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a work in progress. I know. You yeah. never know. Yeah. Did you, did you ever think about getting into, uh, film other media that kind of stuff i mean you're in roughly the right place uh absolutely it's easier said than done i know but. yeah i think so yeah i think that's probably even harder than getting into games writing is somehow getting into like tv or movies or yeah. even comics I, I look at people who are being like oh i wrote this this new comic and i'm like how like what 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 devil did you sell your soul to to get this done? Like, how do you do this? You know, it does seem like this magical thing that some people can do. And I think a big part of it is networking and contacts and who, you know, and getting that shot, getting your stuff in front of the right people. But yeah, I would love to one day work on, you know, animation or movies or TV or something like that. Uh, me and a buddy of mine are working on a pilot for a TV show right now. So nice. hopefully that'll go somewhere. If not, it's still a lot of fun. So it's good practice to write on the meantime. So I, I do. I've, I've dabbled in some screenwriting before. And for one thing, it's really fun. Like anybody who just enjoys writing, I would oh, yeah. say uh, definitely just pick a weekend and think up, a, even if it's one scene, just learn how, yeah. how it works and how to do it. I was starting an article recently about how to do screenwriting like a programmer, because there's mm -hmm. there are a few things like um, what's it? Fountain, the uh, the open screenwriting format thing. There, there are a couple things that will let you basically open a code editor 
and and just write the stuff instead of like whipping out final draft or you oh, know, that's cool. spending 700 bucks on something that may never earn you a dime as long as you live. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I definitely use free software. I use, yeah, I, I don't think I've owned final draft since college when I got it for super cheap. So yeah, yeah I definitely recommend people just download a thing. It is one of those things that once you see how the formatting is done, it's just, that's kind of how it's done. You know, some writers, do their own thing in the script. But for the most part, they all kind of read the same. There's a yeah. lot of just free scripts online. Like I spent a lot of my time just reading scripts online and just seeing how they wrote it, you know, how their dialogue flows, where their action lines are and stuff like that. And you can learn a lot like that. And then once you do, it's, yeah, it's just coming up with an idea and sitting down one day and writing. And who knows? You may be great at it. Yeah, it, it may be natural for you. I always thought that was a, a very fun part of it. It's a lot like when you first get into like game development and go, how is this done? How, what are the parts? How does everything move and fit together? You can do the same thing for like a sitcom you love or a movie. You oh, can, yeah. a lot of times you can just go find a script and see exactly what was done. You can see what wasn't done, like what, what got written and what got changed and stuff. It's a lot of fun. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good exercise is to, uh, my friend had me do this where you read it through once and just read it by itself and then read it while you watch the episode and kind of, or the episode of the movie or whatever it is and see, yeah, see like what you said, you know, what did they do? What didn't they do? What did the director probably do that wasn't in the script? You know, you can kind of see the differences between it. And I think once you have a feel for how that stuff gets translated from page to screen and you kind of see it all come together, it loses, I guess, a lot of its magic or mysticism. And you kind of see like, no, it's just a lot of work you put in and it is technical work. It's very creative, but it's put on a very technical type of document. And then, yeah, and then it gets on the screen, hopefully, and it looks great. And you have something like Into the Spider-Verse, which is just yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm not the first person to say this, but there's so many important lessons that I think the game industry will eventually learn from film mm. and stuff like that. I I forget the book, and I, I, I'm doing this author a terrible disservice because I'm going to use his point exactly. But it was the intro of this book was basically like, think about movies, think about Hollywood. Every scene comes down to a big stack of papers, a schedule, a roster of people, a guy with a clipboard who runs around knows exactly where this one traffic cone goes, yeah. and, and it's going to be right exactly where it needs to be. And and they have much less, you know, they get blamed for mismanagement much mm -hmm. less and uh, budgetary cuts and people losing jobs are a little less common. Like there are a lot of good things we can pick up. And it's just because that industry has been big and strong so much longer. Yeah. But the faster we start to translate those things, probably the better, I would guess, you know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we can easily see what they do right and hopefully take that and then, you know, what they do wrong not do that you know it should be that easy right <laughs> just to be like what do they do better than us we should do that what do they do worse let's not even try that you know it's like uh, when you're growing up and you think like well my my mom's cool but my dad is dumb or yeah something, something <laughs> like that it's like and i'm i'm watching and i'm trying to learn from both of them or maybe yeah. you like each of your parents sometimes and not other times yeah, yeah, yeah it's that yeah, same yeah. kind of thing <laughs> yeah. learn from uh from watching yeah exactly so yeah, hopefully the game industry, you're right, it is young overall, right? And especially with these big type of games and the fact that we now do have, you know, a lot more indie, indie studios popping up and making their own games. Like, I feel like the industry is changing quite a bit. There is more emphasis on big stories and bigger budget games. Now we have games as a service and, you know, making sure people are playing for a longer period of time and doing a lot more DLC and there's all the whole loot box thing. You know, it's, I think the industry is in a very interesting time like we're kind of in our teenage years right now and figuring stuff out and hopefully mm -hmm. we come out of our teenage years having learned a whole lot and are a lot more mature when those teenage years end 
no idea, but hopefully soon. <laughs> yeah, hopefully soon. Now, as a writer, watching these battle royal games must kind of piss you off a little bit. <laughs> There's there's some lore and there's some whatever, but come on. Yeah, I they would, but I love them so much that I don't even care. You know? Are you into them? What do you <laughs> yeah. play? Right now, I'm in, I mean, I've been playing Apex Legends uh, since it came out day one, basically every single day. That one has hit my uh, the right spot for me. But I played a whole bunch of Fortnite. I played PUBG when it first came out. Um, I played Blackout. I bought COD just for Blackout. Uh, oh. So I do like the genre a lot, but you know. It is taking a lot of players and a lot of time to uh, <laughs> to a genre and a type of game that's not what I'm writing for. So it's like I would like a couple of those, you know, thousands of hours that people are spending on that game to play some more story-oriented games. That'd be cool. <laughs> I can't decide if I want to support Apex and hope they get back to Titanfall or mm. not support Apex and hope <laughs> they get back to Titanfall. Like I was a big Titanfall <laughs> fan. Which one? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know like, which one's going to push them that direction, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming now that their Star Wars game is putting that on the back burner, unfortunately. But also not unfortunately, that's another tough one. It's like, I really want this Star Wars game, but I also want Titanfall 3. So it's like, uh, I can't really be mad at Respawn. I actually just wrote about this, and Respawn was actually my example of a a studio-publisher combo that was actually doing right by people by... They did, they did dip their, their toe into this, you know, battle royal thing, but they're also offering the rest of their players something else. And in the case of, I was able to name several studios that just as soon as something took enough of their attention, you know, Mm. you, you get things like, well, we were going to do this, uh, mobile game and it's canceled. Or, um, in the case of, what was it? Uh, Blizzard shut down their, their, one of their own, um, esports games because they had to focus on Overwatch, you know, uh, Heroes of the Storm or whatever it was. And a, a bunch of teams woke up one morning and it was like, the season's canceled. Like, <gasps> what? People yeah. were relying on this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's always funny when that stuff happens. Well, not funny, more of a sad funny where yeah. it's, uh, it seems like those decisions are being made very quickly to at least the people that are, you know, working on the games, the developers that are on the ground floor. A lot of those things are like just one day you wake up and you have that, you know, that message in your inbox or you have a all hands meeting and you're like, oh, okay, this was sudden for me. And you don't know. It's probably months in the making right people at the top oh yeah decisions but but people working on the game going in expecting to you know still be tweaking someone's kit for heroes of the storm and then they're being told it's basically shut down it's like that's that's a rough day to have that's a yeah yeah it's not fun or or how uh, Fortnite killed Unreal Tournament, which was not good. Yeah, because like <laughs> I, I I was telling somebody like playing Unreal Tournament at a buddy's house over the summer, like those will be some of the fondest memories of that age oh, range yeah. that I that I'll come away with. Oh so, yeah. So I understand it can't go on forever, but it sure went on a long <laughs> time till Fortnite came along. Yeah. Hey, there's plenty of other games like Counter Strike's still going on forever. So why not? Why can't you know? Why can't Unreal Tournament keep going on forever? Yeah. So. <laughs> That that was a a big a big diversion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we we left off. You had moved from customer support to full time writing at last. Yeah. So yes. what happens next? Uh, so I work on that game as the the sole writer on a MOBA, and we were doing something where our our new thing was that it was going to be completely in the browser. So you could hop in for fifteen minutes, like just play in your browser, and that was the thing that was going to you know hopefully differentiate us from all the other downloadable mobas at the time, like League and Heroes of the Storm and everything like that. And then late in development, right before launch, they're like, you know what? Let's actually go on Steam after all, which kind of got rid of our whole the one thing that differentiated us, which is that you didn't have to download this. It's kind of a big deal, yeah. Yeah, but then they're like, we got to go to Steam because there's just 
so many more players. And I get that, you know, sure. you have to go where the players are. And I don't know what decisions ultimately led to shutting it down, but very shortly after launch, they were like, we're letting you all go. Um, some of you will be moving on to other teams, but there was a hundred something of us that got let go. Game was shut down immediately. Mm. Um, yeah, it was, it was rough. And after that was basically two years off and on of unemployment for me trying to find other work. It was really rough. And I, I worked on a couple of other games in the meantime, just as a freelancer. I worked on like a little Facebook game. I worked on a mobile game. I worked on a match three game as like a puzzle designer, you know, making like Candy Crush type games, but like making the actual puzzle designs and everything. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, it was cool to see how that was actually done. And I could never, ever play a match three game again because of that job. Oh, I, I could see that. Oh, when your entire day is spent just looking at little colorful shapes and moving them around and hoping that you can make a fun level. It's kind of like seeing how the sausage is made, so I cannot play those anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. And then after that, um, shortly after that job ended, which was also just a six-month contract gig, I got the one at Ubisoft, and then it took a, four months to get my visa sorted. So I basically was just sitting around doing nothing for four months, oh, waiting yeah. for my visa to come through and you know, worried that something would happen and I wouldn't be able to get it. And then I was like, oh, no, I haven't been looking for another job. Like, What's going to happen? I was freaking myself out. Super hardcore. Because yeah. uh, it was, you know, I was finally, finally got the job that I really, really wanted, which was AAA. And actually, it wasn't the first time I applied to Ubisoft at the studio either. I had applied one time before for a writing, writing job as well, uh, maybe five or six months before, and didn't get it. I had interviewed, did the writing test, all that, didn't get it. Saw it pop up again and went for it and then got it that time. So if anyone out there is applying, apply more than once. Yeah. One time does not necessarily mean no. It just means not right now, you know, unless they tell you. You're terrible, but what is a writing test like for a position like yours? So it definitely all depends. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. I would say for the most part, if you're hopping into something like a franchise or something with established characters, the main thing they want to see is that you can write their characters. Mm -hmm. So the test will probably revolve around here's the prompt. Here are the characters that we want you to use, write like a two to three to four page, you know, whatever it may be screenplay with these characters in this prompt. And usually there'll be two parts to it. Usually it'll be like, do this prompt exactly. And then they'll give you more freedom on the second part and be like, show us, you know, more of your, your personal type of writing. But it all depends. Some wants you to do some AI writing, just show that you can do barks and AI lines and stuff like that. But for the most part, you're going to be writing in screenplay format. You're going to be doing pretty decent amount of hours of work, at least if you, you know, cause you want to make sure it's to the best of your ability. So the first draft may only take you an hour to get done, but you're spending another 10 on top of that, just making sure that it's good enough before you send it off. But yeah. you also want to send it off quickly before they find someone else. So it's, it's a tough little dance. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, barks are like, like sidewalk lines, like walking around town, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So barks and AI lines is all the, like if you're playing something like Assassin's Creed Odyssey, all the like guard lines that are like, Hey you, what are you doing here? And all that kind of stuff. Yeah arrow in the knee and all that stuff. Yeah. Those hundreds and thousands of lines is something that writers also have to do in the game. So it's not just writing the fun, you know, dialogue and cinematics and stuff. Like we also have to write all of the barks. We have to write all the gear descriptions that you're reading, all the text on screen. You know, it's more than just the fun stuff. There's definitely a part of the project where you're doing the stuff that isn't as exciting, but still needs to get done for the project to ship. So. Yeah, I, I picked up bits and pieces of this when I was reading. I think the book was uh, Significant Zero by Walt Williams, who worked on Spec Ops The Line. 
Right. Yeah. If, if I'm not mixing up books and I'll feel stupid later if I was, <laughs> but uh, it, it was a lot of like a look into a studio session and like big, big spreadsheets full of lines for thousands of situations and, and things like that. And it's stuff that people don't think about until you really sit down and break it down in your head. Like, Oh yeah, that person has to do all that in all these situations. And it has to just be, uh, my numbing might not. Yeah. My numbing might be the right term. Yeah, no, it definitely is. There were, there were moments <laughs> where we were just writing AI lines where by the end of the day, my mind was just mush. It was yeah. just absolute mush, like more so than even writing real dialogue and characters, like writing those lines, your mind just turns to mush and you just kind of zone out and don't hear anything. You're just you in the dock in front of you and you're just writing. You don't remember writing it at the end of the day. You're like, did I even do any work today? And you look and you did like 700 AI lines. You're like, yes, I did. Hope they're good. You know, so <laughs> kind of become an NPC yourself. Like, <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, Jordan, honestly, you doing yeah. okay? Like, yeah, it's a nice day today. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And that type of writing is really interesting, too, and was a challenge because you need to write lines that are good enough, but not so good that they stick out. And it's this mm -hmm. weird, like, middle ground where they need to be really good so that the player gets all the information they need. Or it's, you know, if you have a funny one, it needs to be not too funny because then every time the player hears it, they're going to remember that one line. Just like, for example, the arrow to the knee. Yeah. The reason why that one got called out is because it was used everywhere and it was a very specific, like memorable line. <laughs> yeah. So don't write your arrow to the knee line because uh, I mean, or do because you'll get a meme made out of it and it'll always be said for countless years afterwards. So maybe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I may do that on my next project. Actually, I mean, that's my goal. To, <laughs> that's that's your arrow to the knee. That should yeah. be what everybody looks for <laughs> to find. Yeah. Find your arrow to the knee and uh, get it out there. So Ubisoft takes you in and mm -hmm. Do they put you straight on Odyssey? Yeah, I was straight on Odyssey. Um, when I arrived, we were in pre-production, so we weren't really in the writing portion yet. And Odyssey was the first time that we had done a game with dialogue choices and a dialogue tree and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. there was a lot of learning going on, a lot of figuring out how the tool was going to work, how we were going to do choices. So it was cool coming in at the very beginning and seeing all of that take shape and really figure out how we wanted this game to come across and how we wanted the choices to be and, you know, how emotional we wanted them to be or, you know, whatever it was going into production with those decisions being made. And then there were a lot of growing pains because it was the first type of game that we had done like that, obviously. But I think it was, it came out really, really well. And all the writers did a really good job. We had a decent sized team and we worked with multiple studios outside of the Quebec city team as well. Like we worked with writers in Singapore and Montreal and, you know, we had multiple teams working on different things because there was just that much to do. Um, cause there are a lot of paths in that game and a lot of, a lot of dialogue. <laughs> yeah. And when you guys say you, you have a diverse team of, of like, even when you have the splash screen that says it's written by a diverse <laughs> team of blah, blah, blah. And then you watch the credits and it takes 45 minutes for it to go by. Yeah. Like, I, I believe it. Like you clearly yeah. do have a diverse team from all over the, the universe, I guess. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, it's funny. I was glad because. It was the first time that my name was in credits. So I was like, I have to take a picture of it, obviously. I've sent it to my family and everything. Oh, yeah. Thankfully for Odyssey, they had, um, if you held down on like the right stick, it would kind of fast forward a little bit, mm -hmm. which was super nice. Every game, please do that for all your developers so that they can scroll by faster. And it yeah. had a pause button so you could pause right where you wanted it to. It was great. But yes, if you watch those whole things, it's, yeah, a very, very long credit scene because literally thousands and thousands of people work on these games. Yeah. So cool. So how, how long a development process is it for Odyssey? Um, I'm not exactly sure how long the conception phase was for it since I came after that, but 
uh, let's see, we launched in October uh, this last year, 2018. Mm-hmm. And I got, I started working there the end of August, 2016. So basically for me, I was full-time on it for two years until launch. Um, obviously the writing team has to be done a lot sooner than the launch date because we have to have it all written, recorded, uh, localized, all the translations and stuff like that. So our job was done early in the summer, probably Mm -hmm. June, July, the writers were done. And that's when we were working on stuff that was only text, like all the item descriptions, all the quest names and all that kind of stuff. Um, Because we were able to do that because they weren't recorded lines. So it was a good, you know, three, four years on that game, um, especially since they took an extra year after, you know, Origins and then and then Odyssey. You know, Origins took the extra year, which means Odyssey also got that extra year, which helped a lot. Yeah, it, I guess it's a silly thing not to have thought about before, but I'm I'm sitting here thinking like, yeah, I guess if you're still writing too close to launch, something went wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, you're, if you're writing too close to launch, that writing is not getting in there. It's yeah. not going to be in there. <laughs> or, or a lot of people are going to be uh, really rushed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, our We had very, very strict dates uh, that came from our audio team based on, you know, when they could get the actors and actresses in the studio. So we could not miss a date and we had to hit them. You know, it was one of those things where it's like there was no second option. There was no like, oh, just miss it and we'll get it another time. It was like, no, this is your date and it will get hit. And we always did. We had to. So yeah. And and this project gave you a distinction that uh, very few people on the planet will ever get to do. You got to write for Socrates for one thing. Yes. Probably the, the one and only time I'll ever be able to do that in my life. I don't think there's that many video games out there that use Socrates. You know, it's strange. I can't. Uh, th- I don't know if <laughs> Bill and Ted, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Even, even normal media, right? Like it's just not that much. And uh, it, was a lot of fun and very challenging and it was so cool being able to you know be handed that character and i wrote probably about 90 percent of his stuff so there was a, a few scenes here or there that i didn't write and one of the other writers took care of but like his entire character quest line and his intro and all that kind of stuff i wrote and it's one of those characters where you have to write someone who is far smarter than you'll ever be in your entire life. Like I could go my entire life right now, quit my job and just try learning for the rest of my life. And I still wouldn't be able to come up with the kind of stuff that like Socrates is known for, you know, that, you know, Plato wrote about. You can't suddenly devote your life to philosophy. <laughs> no, I can't. For a work I, project. <laughs> no, and I don't have the mind for it either. I took a philosophy course in college and it didn't go very well. So I did too. I really enjoyed it, but it, it scared <laughs> yeah. me even more. Like I'm nothing like these people and I wish I was, but I'm not. Yeah, it's exactly what it was. I loved that class, but I also didn't love the grade I got. So, you know, it was one of those things. <laughs> a lot of fun. Grade, not so much. But yes, yeah, so you're writing for this character that you know you're not smarter than, that you know you never will be but you still have to get their voice right and kind of make people feel like they are talking to Socrates if he was alive today. And it wasn't an easy task whatsoever. And I was freaking out until well after launch, until I started seeing feedback and people were talking about how much they loved him and everything like that. But up until I started seeing the feedback, I was freaking out. I was like, people are going to hate him. They're going to hate him. (laughs) See right through this. (laughs) Like I did terrible. I did so terrible. Thankfully, they said that he was annoying, as he should have been. I did write him that way. So people were like, God, he's so annoying, but I really like him. And when I saw that, I was just like, 
yes, you get it. That's exactly what it was. Like That is, that's should, about right. <laughs> he should be just as annoying. You should want to punch him in the face, but also maybe get a beer with him afterwards was kind of the goal. So <laughs> I killed him, but damn, I respect him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically that. You're just like, I kind of miss him, but in a really weird way where I don't really want to see him ever again, but I miss <laughs> him. You know, this strange thing. So it was really cool writing that character. Um, he was definitely the biggest and most important character that I had a hand in. Um, for the entire game, other than obviously Alexios and Cassandra, the main character. But it was really cool because I did do a lot of research into stuff that was written about Socrates because he didn't believe in writing things down. So we have no writings from him. So it's not like I could be like, oh, I'm just going to read Socrates' writings because he didn't have any. So it's all through a third party already. Um, But it was a lot of fun to read through that and kind of see how he was portrayed. And one of the big things we tried to get across in the game was his the Socratic method, which was basically he just keeps asking you questions, leading you to a point. And he never really says anything himself. He just wants you to get there on your own or for you to kind of fight against your own belief and come to a conclusion in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had one really cool spoilers, one really cool quest in, uh, in Athens in the game. And you, after spending a lot of time with him over the course of the game, you finally get in front of a crowd with him. And you kind of have this moment where you're convincing the crowd with Socrates at the same time, kind of playing off of each other. But we did give you the choice to answer wrong in that. So he would be like, Socrates would ask you a question, you could answer wrongly, and he would be like, oh, no, but, and he would keep going on and stuff like that. So we did give the, you know, you could kind of mess with Socrates if you wanted to, for the people that wanted to do that. But yeah, it was one of those things where I had an artist uh, on Twitter draw up a little, like, chibi Socrates, and he's like my next tattoo. So I will be posting that. He is adorable. And uh, that's awesome. It'll be because I got to write him. It was a great honor. So, yeah. Very cool. I, I think maybe for this reason, and that's a fascinating point. Another thing I wouldn't have thought of, but um, maybe you better hope that Twitter doesn't get what they want. And uh, the next one is set in biblical times. Because I'm <laughs> guessing writing for Jesus wouldn't be any easier. Or yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, I think, yeah, writing for Jesus may get... Uh, more of a negative response from the public, depending on how you wrote him. So thankfully, Socrates, you know, everyone thought he was a dick anyways, so it's fine. You could write him however you wanted, and if you annoy people, it's like, yeah, it's just Socrates. It's fine. He was a dick. But uh, yeah. yeah, writing Jesus, maybe not so much. It's <laughs> probably a bit risky. I don't know why I never thought of it, but from the first time I heard, um, like Jason Schreier was tweeting about it for a long time. Um, and then people kind of fed off that and they're like, yeah, here's how it would happen. And here's what could unfold. And I'm sitting there thinking like, what a mess that would be, but I really want to play it. Like, you know, it's funny that you bring up his thread. Cause I actually responded and I was like, I was like, Jason, I was brought up in a Christian household. I was like, I know the entire Bible. I was like, I could write this game for you. And I wrote like a little like fake scene and like how like the, the eagle flying through the Garden of Eden and all that good stuff, just <laughs> joking around and everything. But it would be interesting. I mean, technically, Adam and Eve and everything are in Assassin's Creed lore. You know, they were the first yeah, people to, you know, fight back against the Isu. So it could be done. Who knows? Maybe, you know, 2036, we have Assassin's Creed biblical times. Who knows? It could happen. <laughs> You know, don't write it off yet. They may go there. Bible Creed confirmed. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> okay, so we, we get through game launch, and yeah. obviously it's very popular and people just love it. People call it a return to form, and, and it's it's all, all very positive. How early does the award talk begin for this game? The hunt was, for awards, I'll say. Yeah, I mean, you always hope right away. Um, there's There was talk before launch. You know, you kind of have the guesses of like, what is our Metacritic going to be and everything like that? What are the, what is going to be the aggregate score? 
And there's those talks happening weeks, weeks before launch and directly before launch, you know, the day before, I don't think I slept very much because I was so worried about what scores it was going to get. And yeah. it was my first big release, you know, it's like I was working with people who have done a lot of AAA releases and they weren't freaking out about it. But I was like, look, you guys, this is my first one. I have worked so, so hard to get here. And it was not an easy road whatsoever. You know, it was filled with unemployment and losing jobs and everything and moving to where I knew nobody. Yeah. Um, so I did not get much sleep. I was just very worried about the scores. And I know the scores don't necessarily mean the game is bad or anything, but you know, you still have that fear that the embargo is going to lift and all the game journalists have the reviews out and you're seeing something that you weren't expecting to see, or you're seeing, you know, huge paragraphs. My biggest fear was that I was going to see negative feedback about specific things that I had written in the game. Oh, that yeah. was my biggest fear is that they're going to be like, Socrates, worst writing I've seen in the game ever. <laughs> don't buy this game. And then, then what do you do? You know, where do you go from there? It's just like, I guess, I guess I suck. I shouldn't have done this. So, you know, that was the fear. And that was a lot of imposter syndrome talking, uh, which is a huge thing for me and a lot of writers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was scary. And then the award season after that, you know, was fun, but going up against games like God of War and Red Dead, you know, coming out in the same year, we were going up against some very big boys. So making that lineup was <laughs> huge. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, um, getting nominated alongside them for stuff like, you know, narrative or game of the year, you know, being up there with them for game of the year was awesome. And I'm super glad that God of War won. It was my game of the year last year. Absolutely. I loved that game so much, but I think just the nominations alone were, are worth so much because you're having people say like, this deserves to be up there with these other games that um, are huge and being made by, you know, people like uh, Rockstar, you know, who have been spending seven years on this game. Uh, so getting up there and being able to like be like, here are the nominees. And you see, you know, your character that you wrote for up there is a, a really, really cool feeling. And yeah. the award season is very long. Like there were still moments where I swear, like last week, Corey uh, Barlog was still giving speeches in some new country for winning <laughs> awards and stuff. Every week, you know, he's given a speech somewhere for some award happening. It's absolutely deserved. But the award seasons are long. They're very long. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, as far as the, the video game writing categories, like, I feel like I'm not in charge, obviously, but I feel like the right gentle breeze could have blown this year direction. It seems like it, it was something incredible to be a part of, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that for a, you know, a first time out writing something, you know, akin to The Witcher 3 with, you know, those kind of choices and those kind of dialogue options was a huge, huge undertaking. And the fact that we were able to pull it off and do it in the way that we wanted to, um, was awesome. And there was a, you know, there, there was a part of me that was like, oh man, if I, if we won this for narrative, it would just be the ultimate thing. Didn't happen, but I yeah. still love the work that we did and love the writing that I did on the game. And yeah, just being nominated by them was a really, really cool feeling because you have people recognize it and that's, that's always nice. You don't see much positivity, you know, you see people talk about what they hate on stuff online a lot. And when you get that one positive comment, like I'll remember that one positive comment well after you know the 20 negative ones i read that day you know so yeah. spread more positivity folks because we remember it <laughs> right it's it's easy to spread a uh, shitty attitude but there's a certain vulnerability in saying that something is good and i know i'm not telling you anything new but uh to actually open yourself up and admit to the people around you i enjoyed this you know i like yeah. this and, and you're sort of putting your reputation on the line as a critic but like people need to let go of that yeah, because I know people are enjoying more than they act like they're enjoying. Yeah, and it's this weird thing, especially online, where it's like, hey, you feel like you have to pull back because if you're too excited for something, people like get upset at you for it. Yeah, they're like, they sniff it out like blood, like sharks. Yeah, it's like it's crazy. It's like 
just let people like it. Like they like it that much. They're, they're not you. They're allowed to like it that much. You know, you don't know how much they like it. Um, it may be the best thing we ever played. It may be the worst thing you ever played. And both of those things can be true. You know, it's, it's yeah. The internet was a mistake, but <laughs> I say it all the time. We need to go back to Microsoft and Carta yeah, and right. uh, like, like maybe early AOL instant messenger, but that should be yeah. it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Don't go any further. That's it. So I, I know you've since been reassigned toward the next project, whatever it may be, and we'll be looking forward to, to learning more about that when it's time. But I, I'm hoping you felt pretty secure in the saddle once this once Odyssey was sort of winding down, like you weren't going to get like tossed out of the second story or anything. You know? yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that that is a fair question because it unfortunately happens a lot where games ship and you have to start, you know, you had ramped up to so many people that you needed to get this game out. And now you have all these people and you don't have a game to get out anymore. And there are a lot of studios and I get it because it is a money thing. It's a business thing where, you know, you can't pay these people anymore to do nothing. Thankfully, and I've seen this, you know, from a lot of people from other studios at Ubisoft as well, but Ubisoft has always done a really good job of not, you know, letting go, you know, a huge amount of people just because the project ended. Mm -hmm. Um, For us in particular, we thankfully, you know, we had the DLC to do after. So basically, as soon as the game launched, we were on DLC writing that. And so we had more content that we had to do. But there were moments where there was nothing in that in-between time. And instead of just being like, okay, yeah, we're going to let you guys all go. And we're going to hire back a couple of people maybe in the future. They were, you know, very gracious to be like, to recognize the talent and the skills that we had and knowing that they were going to have work in the future and be like, it's much better to keep the team around because we know we are going to have work. So it was nice to have that security because it's unfortunately a very rare thing in this industry. As we've seen, I think last year was terrible for the industry. with just how many studios closed and how many mass layoffs there were. Like, I don't remember, maybe there were, but I don't remember another year that was that bad. I feel like it was, there was a couple of months where every week there was like 200 people, 300 people, 800 people, 50 people, you know, an entire studio is closing, not just teams being let go. And, um, so that's always a fear you have, even here, someplace where I do feel secure. Anytime you have a meeting one-on-one with someone who's above you, there is that fear, especially since I had been laid off before with, you know, in a big group, you have that fear of just like, here's that moment again. Like this is the moment where I lose my job again and have to figure out what I do. So it's very unfortunate that that is a fear that is very prevalent in this industry. And it's for a reason, because as we saw last year and even into this year, a lot of people are losing their jobs and you usually never see it coming. So it's, it yeah. is one day you go to sleep and you wake up the next day and you don't have a job. And now maybe I'm moving my life somewhere else. You know, maybe I have to, if you have kids or anything like that, take them out of school so I can go find a job somewhere else. Um, it's, it's scary for sure. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm glad they're doing right by you. Ubisoft's done a lot of really cool stuff lately. Obviously, for example, pledging money to rebuild in Paris just recently, <laughs> just super cool, very popular with everybody. You guys, they had to they had to coin a phrase for the opposite of re- review bombing <laughs> after after Ubisoft did that. I'm trying to remember somebody on Gamma Sutra had one. It was like I can't remember what it was. It was something grenades, but it, it's like praise grenades or praise something. Grenades. <laughs> but it was it was super positive, and uh, it even brought up questions about like will Steam have to wipe these out too, like they did for Borderlands when people like mm. negatively review bombed. <laughs> right. And yeah. I was like, oh, I'd hate to be that guy. Like, <laughs> yeah, the guy that who had to like, like the guy sweating with the two buttons, like wipe them out <laughs> or don't wipe them. I, I wouldn't want to be that guy, but uh, Ubisoft's clearly doing some cool stuff right now. Oh, and I, I hope they continue with that. So 
Uh, as we're winding down, because believe it or not, an hour has almost gone by already. Some of our uh, listeners on Patreon had a couple of questions for you that I promised I would relay. And uh, you can go into these in as little or as much detail as you care to. But the first one is this. Our friend Charlie asked, if you could make any game with Ubisoft's resources, their team, their money, their everything, what kind of game would you make? Oh, man. Ooh. Yeah, I know. Basically, all the resources, all the money. Right. Um, oh, that's tough. I think it would have to be fantasy for sure. Um, I love fantasy. It's been my favorite genre of books and games for many, many years now. So it would definitely have to be fantasy. There would definitely have to be dragons involved for nice. sure. Yeah. Like huge ones to climb. I want like Shadow of the Colossus kind of, you know, like that kind of stuff. I like um, that, yeah. But I really like like the Bioware games with the, the companions. And I really like the Persona games a lot. And those are very big on you know, spending time with the people just as much as you're out there fighting, you know, mm-hmm. and I love that. And I would love to write a game that has just like nine fully fleshed out companions that have a ton of backstory, have a, their own story arcs and everything like that. I would love to write a game like that. So fantasy, lots of story, basically what Bioware, you know, was doing. <laughs> <split> <laughs> more, more spiritual Bioware <laughs> successors. That kind yeah, of thing. I guess, I guess that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally on board. And I, I know you're a sports guy. I didn't know if you would go maybe a little uh, more in that direction. So mm-hmm. I was interested to see what you'd say. <laughs> uh, I, like, I like swords and magic way too much. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. And the, uh, the other one's from our friend Chaz, who says, how do you balance between your own vision uh, for a game, I'll say for a task, and the uh, demands of the audience, uh, demands of uh, directors above you, that kind of thing? Like, how do you, how do you balance you versus external factors? Okay. I mean, it, it kind of all depends on the moment. Um, there are times where you need to do exactly what the director's telling you because, you know, time constraints or this is the exact vision that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully you're in an environment where you can, you know, kind of not fight back, but maybe if you have a different vision and be like, you know, I was thinking maybe we could do this instead. But for the most part, um, on Odyssey, we had a lot of freedom and autonomy to, you know, come up with these ideas. Like they maybe would give us like, okay, we're in Athens. We need this kind of theme for this quest line. Like go with your quest designer and come up with some ideas and pitch it to us. So we were able to do that a lot, which is nice because we did get to put a lot of our own ideas and creativity into it from the very start, just within the kind of theme or area that they wanted. So it was kind of a nice melding between the two of directors being like, we need this, um, but still allowing freedom to, you know, the writers and the quest designers to come up with what we wanted to come up with. Um, And there's some stuff in, later DLC that is coming out that I'm very excited about because one of those quest lines I wrote is uh, one of those, one of those very creative. I had a lot of say in it once. So I'm excited for people to play that one. Nice. Very cool. I think people will be very satisfied by both of those answers. (laughs) So I know you're working on a little bit of personal stuff. You mentioned one thing you're working on uh, a screenplay with a friend. Is that the thing you're doing with somebody from uh, Ubisoft? Yes, it is. Yeah. Another writer there. We, I had, uh, we were talking about our own personal projects we were working on, and I had this one that I wanted to do by myself, but um, I was kind of talking to him about it, and he was like, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. And I was like, okay, sure. Yeah, let's do <laughs> oh. it. Um, and it's always nice. Um, and it's, it's great. I will say this. Having a writing partner is amazing. Um, I have a whole bunch of unfinished works that I've written on my own that are just sitting on my computer that who knows if I'll ever finish them, but they're half done. I have like yeah. 50, 
like multiple fantasy novels that are like at 50,000 words that have just been sitting there for years. But having a writing partner being like, okay, we're meeting on Sunday. Here's what we need to get done before then. And seeing, you know, spending six hours and coming up with new stuff is infinitely better. So we've made a lot of good progress. Really excited about it. Hopefully it turns into something. If it does, that would be great. That's, that's, that's the dream right there you know get something on like hbo or netflix or something and oh uh, yeah yeah See, take it from there and and when i recently explored something like this too and even even started work on a little something my wife and i were talking about this also i'm like it it's a really it seems like a great time to, to start it there are more mm. more creators more studios looking for stuff than ever before and uh you know why not now it's a yeah, exactly. magical time to take a shot at it you yeah. know yeah. If if nothing happens, it was at least a smarter idea than it was in years years past. You know. Oh yeah, absolutely. So that's very cool. Uh, where can people go to sort of follow you and your uh, goings on online? Yeah, uh, you can just follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cryptic Jordan. Um, I'm there literally daily. When I close Twitter, I then open Twitter right afterwards. It's bad. So I will, <laughs> I'm always on there. I love interacting with people. I'm happy to answer any questions people have about the industry, writing, my Dragon's Dogma boy that I created, all of it. So when uh, when you said you had personal projects going on, you you have such great insight on on game design and flow of design and things like that that you're talking about games as you go through them and play. For one thing, I've tried to do more of that myself too because I thought mm-hmm. like that is really compelling when somebody's going through stuff and has like concrete ideas about what's mm-hmm. what's good, what's bad. I wasn't going to be surprised a bit if you said you were working on a game. <laughs> so. I mean, I I would like to. Um, unfortunately, my one skill right now is writing, and it's hard to make a game just with writing. Yeah. Um, I I bought a little little course to teach myself Unity, so I'm making a baby 2D platformer just to learn the ropes right now. So. Awesome. Maybe in the future I'll have a game that I make by myself. That is a, a goal of mine too. But right now uh, I'm trying to figure out how to make a character go right and left in Unity. So, <laughs> and then straight to Bible Creed, and then, and then directly to Bible Creed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this has been awesome, Jordan. Thank you again. I know people are going to yeah. love this. Awesome. Thank you so much. As always, if you enjoy the Game Dev Breakdown podcast, you can follow along by subscribing anywhere podcasts are found. Please consider dropping us a rating and a review or tell a friend who's into this kind of thing. And if you want to go even further, check out how you can get involved with our new community over at patreon.com slash play. We'll be back very soon with more very cool stuff and we can't wait to show you. So keep working hard, keep playing, and we will talk to you soon. Mario and Ken were throwing the sign peace. America was playing real like Zaxxon in the Middle East. But no matter how much my neighbor said the world we're in, I was determined to play Missile Command till the end. I wasn't your normal child who played with yak backs and friends. Cause I liked how that track ball felt like the world in my hands. Each star was a space invader, the sky was Gallica. Every day was a boss fight, the soundtrack was Metallica. This was back when the only snakes in my life were on Cupid.